Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each Sunday, you'll join us at the Messiah Lutheran Church Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Oddie. This week, we are continuing our series in the book of Matthew titled, Living the Life of the Beloved and the Belonged. Enjoy. Lesson now, this is the third of the installments, uh, third of the lessons, and as we work through the Sermon on the Mount, and because uh, we weren't here last week because of Easter, so that means we were here two weeks ago, I will not expect any of you to win the quiz that I'm going to give you as to what it is that we uh, studied two weeks ago. But in case you forgot, I put, uh, I put that down for you. So a reminder, number one, that God gives us the gift of faith in which we can have confidence in his promises. I thought it was uh, very appropriate today that uh, Pastor Welmer's sermon was talking about doubt. And, you know, like, how does doubt fit into that? And we always think about Thomas sort of doubting Thomas. He has that, that moniker now forever, you know, it's, it's like when you grow up somewhere and you're like this little kid and then you go back and the only thing people remind you of is some dumb thing that you did. And of course, Thomas now, he, uh, he's uh, forever known as Doubting Thomas. By the way, um, did you know what happened to Thomas after that? What happened to Thomas? He went to India and he became what? He became speared by the Indians. Well, before that, though. <laughs> Jay, Bob. Yes. Yes, he was speared by the Indians, and that will be our recruitment spiel for church workers in the future. Yes, that's right. Yes. But before that, he became the missionary and the apostle to India, and he became known as the patron saint of India. So, you know, if there ever was a... Uh, a story, I think, in some sense of uh, redoing your brand, right? That would be the one right there because he, he was able to take his own uh, life, his own experience, and really run with it and, and really created a, a wonderful thing for the sake of the gospel. So, and then after that, thank you, Bob, for that detail. Uh, yes, we want all the details. How everybody died. All right. So, uh, but so... When God gives us that gift of faith, the gift is in us. But just because it's in us doesn't mean that we always have a high level of confidence in those promises. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, you know, the human experience of faith is confidence. But that's different than the objective reality of faith, which is the gift that God gives. So you see, that's why even when you have doubts, you don't have to worry that you lost your faith because faith is a gift from God. Confidence is my own sense of, okay, I believe it today really strongly because nothing bad happened to me today, right? <laughs> yeah. But when something bad happens to me, something happens that is out of my control, something that I have no influence over, and it interrupts my life and my plans and my happiness, then usually for a lot of us, confidence does what? It goes down. And sometimes I think what we do is we equate confidence with faith. Yes, they're kind of in the same ballpark, right? But they're not the same because you don't have to worry that you're going to lose your faith. You stay, you, you hang on to Jesus. He hangs on to you. And the Holy Spirit is constantly working that in you all the time. 
But confidence goes, comes and goes. And that's kind of, I think, what happened to Thomas. You know, his confidence kind of was waning just a little bit. And plus, you know, look who he was hanging out with. You know, those guys weren't always the most, like, truth tellers, right? There were fishermen there. That should tell us right away, right? <laughs> and a tax collector. Come on, you know? So to some degree, there might have been some legitimacy behind the reluctancy that he had to believe them. What I love about the story is that Jesus took each of them where they were. Did you notice that? Jesus shows up for the guys that sort of got it, but he still had to show up, right? Because up to that point, whose witness did they have to uh, lean on? The women. The women. And we, well, that should go without saying right there, right? Okay. I mean, what? Come on. In those days, of course, in those days, that would go without saying. But so they wouldn't have. So Jesus does what? He shows up. See, he shows up and he doesn't yell at them for not believing the women. He doesn't do anything. He just says, here I am. And then they go, oh, you're here. Well, Thomas isn't there. Well, then eight days later, Thomas is there and Jesus shows up again and he doesn't yell at Thomas. He just says, here, take your finger here. Take your hand. He takes them where they are. That's what he does. He takes you where you are. And then he propels you forward into whatever is the next thing you're going to do. So that's a pretty cool thing about him. So when we think in terms of confidence, then there are lots of things in life that become threats to that. And some of them are spiritual threats to our confidence. And some of them are human threats, and some of them are just sort of kind of environmental threats. So we talked a little bit about how our sinful nature is a threat, if you will, to our confidence. Satan's temptations, we talked about that this morning in the sermon, that that's a huge thing for the devil. What does he do? He comes to you and he says, did God really say? See, his whole gig is that if he can get us to doubt God's word and then move from doubt to denial... Well, then he is a very happy camper. So sinful nature, Satan's temptations. What about the world's influence? We don't talk much about that, but that's huge. The capacity of our world today to influence people from doubt to denial is huge. And to some degree, I would sort of argue that doubting is kind of part of the maturation process of faith, right? I mean, that's kind of where I come at it from is that, you know, like, for example, when you grow up in a Christian home, all right, in ideally, of course, a Lutheran home, right? But some, some people have that and some people don't, all right? You grow up in that and you're sort of surrounded by people that love Jesus and they profess Jesus. You go to Sunday school, you get Jesus, you go to church, you get Jesus, you go to confirmation, you get Jesus, you get confirmed, you have Jesus all around you, right? And then you go to college, Where's Jesus? He's there, but he's not surrounding you. And even if you go to Lutheran college, which a lot of us did, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have Jesus all around you because also what's happening is you are being tested in your belief. Do you really believe that? Or is it just what your parents believed? Or is it just what your church believed? 
So that you see, there is a, there is a kind of a, a, a sword sharpening sword. There is a kind of a, uh, I think a natural and, and to, at least in my view, a, a necessary testing there where you come out of there ideally, or hopefully at some point in your life saying, yeah, I believe it because I believe it. I believe it because God says it. I believe it because, and, and all these other influences of science and technology and evolution and, and people looking at you like you're weird and uh, not intellectual and kind of all those things have to kind of take a second, have to take second place. It's not that they're not important. It's not that they're not um, legitimate, but at the end of the day, you got to believe something. And at the end of the day, the thing that will take you from this life to the next one is Jesus. And how we work out all that other stuff is part of the maturation process, I think, and the uh, growth in your faith and certainly in your uh, intellectual ability. Anybody have any thoughts about that? Any experience with that? Probably many of us do. So Jesus, what does he do? He calls his disciples to do what? To be what? Fishers of men. All right, fishers of men. And what that describes is, uh, in this mess that I put up here on the board, what that describes is, is the opportunity that Jesus' disciples had now or were going to have in, in terms of a change of life. That their opportunity was going to be that their life was going to be about more than just doing whatever it was that they had been raised to do. Fish, tax collect, whatever it was. And so Jesus has a very specific vocation for them to do spiritually at the same time that they would probably still be doing what they did to make a living. You know, sometimes we think, oh, when Jesus said, uh, follow me to James and John, who were the sons of Zebedee, the fisher, uh, fishermen, we think, oh, they gave up fishing. Well, they just did that moment because they still had boats. They still had nets. And frankly, they kind of still needed to eat. I mean, we don't have records of Jesus providing meals for them all the time, right? Like he did a few times, but not all the time. They still had to live. In today's nomenclature, we call that, particularly in Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, we call that being bivocational. Bivocational. We call that worker priest. That's another word for that. And by the way, that is a growing trend if you did not already know that. It used to be when Pastor Coleman and I went through the seminary, the whole idea was you come out as a full, full-time pastor. That's no longer necessarily assumed. And some of that's the economy. Some of that's the uh, cost of full-time pastors. Uh, some of that is the changing nature of churches. There's a lot more smaller churches nowadays that can't afford a full-time pastor. So bivocational is kind of a... Uh, a popular thing. I'm bivocational. Well, actually, I have six part-time jobs, so I don't know what the number would, that would be. Right? But it's kind of, again, that idea. It's that, it's that you have your vocation and you have your spiritual walk. You have the thing that you're doing. All right? And that's what he says is that while you do what you do, you're going to be what? My witnesses. You're going to be fishers of men. Yes, ma'am. Well, too, when, when he said uh, be fishers of men, that would be their congregation to begin with. That's how he would get started. 
Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, that perspective, the witnessing capacity that we all have, that's sort of like your congregation, but it's not gathered together in the way that a congregation is. But if you think about it in terms of your own walk of life, where does your life intersect with the lives of others? Where does that happen? Everywhere. If you're still working, it would be, right? Okay, so that's the place where you do the fishing. That's kind of the idea, right? In your family, that's where you do fishing. Whatever it is, that's where you do fishing. So we have to be sort of uh, multi-purpose fisher people. And maybe a little bit flexible in terms of what does it mean to fish in a place where it's posted, uh, do not fish. Like, where is that would be? How about in a school system? In school system, it's, very, it's posted clearly. No fishing allowed, right? So then you have to be, like, sneaky in terms of the way that you fish. But you have to be flexible. That's my point. Yeah, friend. A lot of the fishing signs say you must catch and release. Catch and release. <laughs> yes, or there's a slot limit. You can only, like, uh, catch something that's uh, under the slot or o- over the slot. Yeah. Someday I'll tell you the story in Missouri of how I came face to face with that reality with a uh, a uh, wasn't a park ranger. I think he was uh, I think he a game warden. I think he had a little higher authority than that. But that will be a different lesson. That won't be for today. All right. (laughs) Now, what happens if what happens if you fall short in the in the fishing? You have the opportunity right in front of you and you clam up. There's that moment when somebody says, you know, gosh, I just, I can't believe you're handling this situation at work so graciously. Uh, you, you, must, you must have something else going for you in your life. And, and in that moment, you know that that's the moment for you to witness about Jesus. And you go, or you just freeze up like I do. Because you don't know what to say because you were kind of blindsided by it. And you go, oh, that's not in my notes. What do I say? What if you fail? What if the witness that you give off by your behavior is not your best moment? And somebody looks at you and does a little God smack with you and says, geez, some kind of Christian you are. And you feel convicted in that moment. You just want to crawl into a hole and never say anything to anybody ever again in your life. Do we give up on fishing? Nope. We repair it. You repair it. And so we repair it by being honest with people and say, you know what? You're right. I totally blew it. You know what? You're right. The devil made me do it. No, don't say that. (laughs) You're totally right. You admit it because everybody in the room knows it. Right? Yeah. Well, for me, the the God smack moment, it's always been a good thing. It makes it might be that time where you don't say anything and then you feel like you've got God smack, but then going forward, it might make you more aware of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, To give you a little more courage to say something the next time because you got God smacked and whatever you said or whatever you did, it's always been a good thing when it happened. Yeah. I mean, again, when God smacks us, this was like two weeks ago, we talked about God smacking. Anybody have God smacking this past couple of weeks? Okay, well, your, your time is coming, let me tell you. <laughs> you know, it's not that God is punishing us and saying, oh, you failed again. What a lousy fisher person you are. That isn't what he does. 
because he forgives us. See, but what is included in forgiveness is then the empowering of his spirit and maybe a reminder that I could probably work a little bit on, you know, kind of getting my sort of spiel down. Not that it's a spiel. I don't mean, you know, what I'm saying uh, that you can respond. And that's OK. But the great thing about it is, um, you know, humans are not lab rats. This is good news. Because what that means is you can go back to that person later, even a week later, and you can say, you know, when you asked me that question, I just was kind of like frozen. And so I've had some time to kind of think about it. And if you're okay with it, I'd like to kind of re-engage in that conversation with you. And most of the time people will say, oh, wow, thanks for being so human. Thanks for being so honest. And you can do it. You can re-engage in the conversation. So see, we don't have to think of witnessing as an event. We don't have to think about it in the terms of saying, well, that was your one shot deal. That was it. That person's going to hell now. Thank you. Thank you very much. You know, we don't have to do that. It's a conversation. It's a conversation. It's a, it's a process. It's a relationship. And it's in the context of that. I think that we can do some of our best fishing. And so then the last point that we made was that uh, other people can be instruments of God smacking. In other words, just sort of that convicting moment when you go, oh, got me. Right. And again, what's the purpose of that is to remind us that we might have gotten a little uppity. Right. We might have gotten a little uh, full of ourselves and we might have forgotten that God's doing this. And when God's doing it, I don't have to worry, but that doesn't mean that I should go in unprepared. Okay. Makes sense. Good. Okay. So now let's move into the, uh, the Beatitudes themselves as Jesus is, uh, focused on Jacob. Did you have your hand up or were you yawning? You were yawning. Okay, good. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, Jacob, for being very honest. Let me tell you. Yeah. There, there's a, you know, what did Jesus say about Nathaniel? You might be a Nathaniel. He said in, uh, he said about Nathaniel, the, the, the disciple uh, Nathaniel was that there's a guy in which there's no pretense, (laughs) right? So, yeah, I did have a thought. Oh, thought. Okay. I, I taught school for 12 years and for the first probably seven years, I got asked all kinds of impertinent questions from my students. And I handled them badly. You handled them badly. For the last five years, it finally clicked. And I think that's the same thing with our witnessing. Correct. Is that as we go through life, people ask us questions and we handle it poorly. Yeah. And it bothers us. It does. And then eventually we come up with our answer. Yeah. Because the things that I would tell my students probably none of the other teachers could either get away with or sure. do, Yeah. but it worked for me. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing. Our witness is individual. Mm-hmm. I think you're right. I, again, I would sort of lend that to the, the maturation process or just the process by which we get to a point where we own the thing that we're saying and we're less worried about being perfect in it. Okay. I think early in our sort of, uh, witnessing. I, I know that when I first got out of the seminary, I was trying to be very conscientious about giving the right Lutheran answer. And so then these questions, people would ask like questions that, that I didn't have an answer for. 
And so that was kind of a panicky kind of moment because it was a little bit like, oh, no, you know, maybe I shouldn't have skipped class that day in seminary <laughs> to go play tennis or something. You know, maybe that's maybe that's it. But but really what it was was being overly um, overly worried about what people would think of me if I didn't know the answer. And so then what started to happen as I I alluded to this a little bit in the uh, the last podcast uh, of talking about this whole process for me is that when when you when you first start out, you don't trust your own light and you don't trust your own voice. So what happens is you try to get everybody else's light and get everybody's voice and make it your own. And it's not your own. But, yeah, you kind of have to start somewhere. Right. Well, then the more you do this, what happens is, is you start to believe that you have something to say. You have a way to respond. And I think partly the other thing is, is that, and I've noticed this in me, the older I've gotten, the less I care about what other people think (laughs) about me. Now, I still do. I still do. And that keeps me connected to people. I don't want to lose that totally and just say, oh, you know, whatever I think is the best and I don't care what you think. I will ne- I'm, I'm not going to go there. That's that's way too uh, too much for me. But but the way to stay connected is is to care about what people think and it is to care about, about what people think of me. It's just that the temptation would be to take it too far. And then what happens is you're not sharing. You're not witnessing. You're not talking. You're not responding because you're too afraid of what other people will think of you if you say the wrong thing or if you say something that in their minds might offend them. And to some degree, we have to get over ourselves. We have to get over ourselves. And I think that that's part of the maturation of faith, but I think it's also practicing it. Yes, ma'am. Sandy. It's like when my friend called me and said, what do you get out of church? And it was the farthest thing from my mind when she asked. When she asked, what do you get out of church? Yeah. So I called and I told her, you know, straight from my heart. Yeah. This is what I get. Well, she's now a member. Yeah. So there you go. It happens sometimes. Now, there's other cases where you do exactly the same thing and people say, oh, and we would be way too tempted to blame ourselves or we would be way too tempted maybe to give ourselves more credit than we should. I think that some credit is due, though, because you did what you responded after you could breathe again. You responded. (laughs) (laughs) And sometimes that's what happens. People ask out of the blue and you kind of go, I do anyway, my brain freezes up. But that's the beauty of it is that you can go back to that person later and you can say, you know, I kind of been thinking about what it was you were talking about. I kind of was thinking about what you were asking. And, you know, it hadn't it just I can't get it out of my mind. And so I was wondering if we might be able to just have coffee together or a beer or whatever it is and talk about it. That's how you do it. And it's not rocket science, but it is putting yourself out there. And sometimes that's a little intimidating for us. Okay. Yeah. One more. And then we will finally move into our lesson for today. Yes. Yeah. It could be the case that you're just just having you plant the seed. Plant the seed. Plant the seed. Oh, very good. Even if it's a case where you're not having a long conversation with them or something like that, but he may just have you plant the seed. They may respond and be like, oh, yeah, okay, whatever. And off they go. Mm -hmm. But 
that may be what he's having you do. Yes. And then somebody else may be watering it, or he may be watering it. Oh, that's a good point. Grow, but it, he may yeah. be having you just plant seeds. That's really good. How many of you like to plant seeds? Yeah, so you could do that. How many of you planted seeds this week? Yeah, seeds were okay. Yeah, if you planted tomatoes, shame on you, right? Got creamed. Okay, all right, let's go into then our, uh, our Beatitudes here, all right? Now, again, reminder that the word blessed, some of the paraphrases, I think the old Living Bible did the paraphrase of using the word happy to put in the place of blessed. I never liked that idea because happy, uh, the way the word happy is used today anyway, is that it's very much of an emotional thing and not a, uh, a, an objective reality thing, all right? Because sometimes, frankly, we are happy. But sometimes we're not. And if I'm not, and this is about happy, well, then what does that mean? I can't have confidence anymore because I'm not happy. So I love the idea of the word blessed. If you think of it as beloved, that's even better. Beloved are thee, beloved are thee, beloved are thee. And that kind of fits with, uh, with the theme that we're doing anyway, the life of the beloved. So he says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Now, what is that mean those who mourn is when you are sorrowful for your sinful instincts, your choices to sin and for the evil that abounds in the world, you are heartbroken over the way that sin impacts the world. See, this is not necessarily just talking about the idea of when you're sad, you'll be comforted when, when somebody dies and you're sad and then you'll be comforted. There certainly is that. And there's many other verses in the Bible that support that, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about from that spiritual perspective that when you look at your life and you look at the world, you have sorrow about how sin appears to be winning. And there certainly are lots of examples where we would look at the world and we would look at the news feeds and we would look at, at, uh, at whatever the uh, social media says, whatever it is. And we could easily conclude from that, that sin is winning and perhaps even that the devil's already won. And so why even have faith? That would be easy to go there. But he says here, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted when you know you are beloved. What do you do with respect to sin is that you repent in sorrow and your comfort is in hearing of God's forgiveness of you and the forgiveness that's offered by a brother or sister. You know, sometimes I think that as significant a moment that it is when we hear of God's forgiveness, particularly in church, like, you know, the, uh, is it called an ordained servant part? Okay. All right. The absolution. Uh, sometimes I think that that doesn't hit us as deeply as those moments when we say to each other, I forgive you. And we want to remember that when we say that it is God's power that enables us to do that. Because frankly, there are times and moments when we hurt each other. And the last thing in the world I want to say to you is I forgive you because of how I'm feeling in the moment. That maybe whatever it is that you did to me, my, my, my hurt feelings are very <laughs> powerful and they're very prominent. And in that moment, you ask for my forgiveness and I'm going to say, I forgive you, but it will feel very hollow to me. It'll feel like words. 
It won't feel heartfelt because my hurt feelings are back here and my words are up here. But those are very powerful moments in terms of the comfort that forgiveness brings. What is it like when you know that the person that you care about, whom you hurt, says the words to you, I forgive you? As opposed to saying, oh, it's okay. Well, it wasn't that big a deal. Well, okay, try hard next time. See, those are the dumb things we all say to each other. And what we ought to be saying, the Bible stuff, which is, I forgive you. Or in the name of Jesus, I forgive you. However you want to say it. Yeah, but look at the the burden that that's taken off of that person. it's It's like it closed the book on that moment, right? Now, it doesn't necessarily fix everything, but it's the starting place to fixing things. It's pretty hard to engage in problem solving with somebody when the stain of the hurt is still there. You ever tried to do that? You ever tried to say, you know, let's just, let's, let's just put that all aside and, and let's try to work on what we can do better next time. If you try to do that without forgiveness, what will happen is that when you get into trying to figure out how to do it next time, the response you'll get will be, why do we always have to do it your way? <laughs> if you hear that, that's a clue that there's some forgiveness that hadn't happened yet and some acknowledgement of sin and hurt that hadn't happened yet that better happen. You can't skip that part and have it work out very well. So beloved life principle number six is knowing that you are loved and already forgiven through the cross gives you the confidence you need to go to God with a contrite heart. What's contrite mean? That's not really a word that you hear people using much today. Truly sorrowful. sorrowful. Yeah, you realize that you're not all that in a bag of chips, right? Yeah. And so Psalm 51 is a reminder of that uh, in verse 17. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Bob. That psalm uh, passage that you gave there takes both the first and second beatitudes. It does. The open spirit and the contrite heart. It does do that. Yes, it does. And we had already had that last time, so I didn't have it here. Excellent point. Excellent point. It's a broken spirit that we take to God, not an arrogant spirit. See, that's the problem with when I take to God, and and this would be true for any of us, going to each other. But if I go to God or if I go to you and have a little bit of that arrogance inside that says, yeah, I did wrong, but I wouldn't have done it if you hadn't started it. I'm not contrite. I'm not broken. Because I'm still putting that little wall around me that says, you know what? Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not a good guy, but you know, I'm not that bad. Right? That's not contrite. That's not broken. And so God in his love for us will allow us to be as broken as he needs for us to be to realize how much we need him. And that is so contrary to our, to our human logic. But that's how God works because he knows that arrogance, it gets in the way. 
And when it's there, I am no more able to be comforted than I am able to be a comforter with somebody else. Well, now he's really going to twist your brain. Blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Now, what do you, what image comes to your mind when you hear or read or see that word meek? Without looking ahead, wimp. (laughs) What else? Milk toast. What else? Doormat, right? Somebody who doesn't really believe in anything and they don't stand for anything and they just let people roll right over them, right? Isn't that kind of how we think of that? That's what I used to think too till I actually looked it up. Here's the meek. In classical Greek, this word is the middle ground between excessive anger and excessive passivity. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? In other words, it's the idea that if I go to a 10 in my anger and disgust for something or someone, that's no more effective than if I go to a one in how passive I am. And maybe I need to address some things that need to be addressed. Is that the same thing as humility? I would say humility would certainly be a part of it. Which again, sometimes I think people confuse humility with passivity. They say, well, I'm being humble. And so, you know, I'm not going to do anything. I'm not going to say anything because after all, who am I? Well, you're just avoiding is what you're doing. But then in reaction to avoiding, sometimes you get people that swing to the other extreme and they think, okay, Jesus went into the temple and turned over all the, te- all the tables and I'm going to do the same thing to you. That's what people do, right? And that's not what he says. The middle place, you do the middle place, you're going to win the world. Wow. Yeah. So can you clarify the difference or if there is a difference between what you just said and the passive aggressive the, 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 the passive aggressive person. You said the anger person, and then you said the person is uh, um, full of humility. And yeah. So passive aggressive, yes, is where I say, no, I'm not angry. I'm not angry. <laughs> right? And so I'm in denial about the fact that I really am upset about something, and I tell people that I'm not upset about something, and then I just undermine the heck out of them. In churches where this happens a lot is I'm not upset about the idea that you had and but I'm going to reserve my opinion until the the voters meeting. Okay. (coughs) Now, again, you know, a little bit of leeway there. We can sort of understand that I may want to think about it. All right. But it's kind of that idea that when I seem to go along with you and I I seem to want to say that you're my friend and that I'm supportive of you until the moment And then I'll just cut your legs out from under you. That's passive aggressive. Okay. That's not what meek is. Is it, does it take some spiritual and emotional strength to exercise meekness in terms of how he defines it here? Oh my heavens. Yes. Oh my heavens. Yes. Yeah. I think it's important. The the last part here that uh, uh, self-control is humility with discernment. Yeah. Discernment being, you know, that I need to look at this and say, what is a proper response? Yeah. That I'm giving a thoughtful response to it. Okay. Now, are there moments when I need to be angry? Yes. But in my anger, what must I watch out for? That I don't abuse you. 
That's that Ephesians passage where it talks about in your anger, do not sin, do not let the sun. I would sort of argue that what he's really saying is don't let too many suns go down on your anger. I was working with a young couple one time and they were very, very devout in their Christianity and they were wanting to follow the Bible exactly the way it was. And so when they read that verse, they thought what it meant was, is that if they start an argument at 10 o'clock at night, they have to finish it before they can go to sleep. <laughs> and that ain't what it's saying. It's just saying, don't let too many days go by. Don't let too many suns set on that. Because the longer that it goes, the more entrenched it becomes. And then you have a pile of yuck that those of you that have gone through my workshops know what I talk about yuck. What I mean is there's this big pile of yuck between you and that other person. And uh, by the way, that's a very scientific term. I've researched that term uh, extensively and yuck is the best way to uh, describe that. So uh, beloved life principle number seven, right? Anger gets people's attention in the short term. Is that right? It does. If you want to get somebody's attention, get angry and you'll get their attention in the short term. The problem is you are not going to change them. And they will shut you off. Meekness transforms people in the long run. It takes longer though, doesn't it? And we get a little impatient and we think, oh, it's not happening and they're not listening to me and why aren't they doing it? And there must be something wrong with them, right? Takes longer. Max. Oh, how would you define righteousness? <laughs> I need for you to say more about what you think righteous anger is and then I'll agree with you or disagree with you. How about that? <laughs> Yeah, go ahead. What do you mean? Well, I think, you know, when you are biblically speaking from directives from God, you know, on types of behavior, yeah. that there might be a time to have righteous anger against it if it's yeah. hurting. You know. Are you hearing me say that we should not have anger? Are you hearing me say that? Are you hearing me say that? No. Okay. What are you hearing me say about anger? Uh, that you well, have to tread carefully. You yeah. Know. And uh, what I would say is I would argue against going to the 10. I, I use a scale of 1 to 10 a lot. So, so 10 is like uber anger, over the top rage, road rage, all heavy, I'm blacking out with anger, I'm saying stuff I shouldn't say, and later I don't remember what I said, so I claim I didn't say it. That's 10. Okay? Now 1 is like you're in a coma. That's the range. Okay? So is there a caution that sometimes in life I need to get angry? Yes. Injustice of others. People getting ripped off. People's rights being trampled on. Uh, people who cannot speak for themselves. And then other people are speaking falsehood about them. Speaking to your teenager. Yeah. I mean, then I need to get angry, but the caution is I don't go into rage because if I go into rage, nobody hears anything but the rage. That's the problem with it. See, if I get angry at you about something you did and it's a legitimate anger, but I go to that high end, that high level of anger, are you going to hear what I'm saying or are you going to hear the way I'm saying it? 
You're going to hear the way I'm saying it. I tried to get away from you. And then you're going to want to get away from me because nobody wants to be around that. And then later when that person's thinking about whatever it is you said, what they're going to remember is they're going to say, boy, he was really mad. And they're not looking at all at what they did. So if I'm wanting you to hear some information about what you did, I got to go the meek route. They hear you better. Yeah, they do. Many, many times when you raise your voice, when we've lost it and we've lost our voice and gotten so angry. Yeah. Well, the person's not really hearing what we're saying. No, the wall goes up yep. instantly. The wall goes up and then I'm not listening to you now. I am a professional listener. That's what you learn when you're a counselor. You can be a professional listener. And so if I'm a professional listener, I can look as if I'm listening to you. <laughs> it took you a minute to get that, didn't it? No, I can. I can do it. I can do it. Of course, you'll never know, will you? <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, that's the thing. A lot of us have poker faces. A lot of us can do that. We register nothing on our faces, but we're still looking at you, right? So, I mean, there's just some of us can do that, but that doesn't mean that we're hearing you. And that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, Carl. So I'm kind of hearing something I hadn't heard about maintenance before. Okay. And it sounds like being having respectful or respectfully holding your ground and what you believe. I like that. Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I like that. I thought of that as being me. I didn't either until I looked at this because I thought it meant something entirely different. I thought it was kind of more the passive thing. It's not. In our culture today, we desperately need so much more of that. Yeah, we do. Because of how, uh, and social media studies are doing on that now, is people are way more rude to each other online than they would ever be face-to-face. -face. You know, oh, I'm typing, oh, I'm getting revved up, oh, hit that send button, bam, you know. But if I'm in front of you, that might be a whole different thing. The concern that we have is, is that we get so good at doing it this way, we're in the habit of it, and then we do it with each other. So you got to get some balance in there as well, human to human, as a, a, in addition to maybe uh, human to screen. Okay, yeah, Richard. You know, um, I, I love Colossians 3.12 because it says, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And, and I guess that I would use the words gentle kindness in place of meekness. Gentle kindness. I'm more, I'm more comfortable with Yeah, that. probably so. Yeah. It just, again, some of it is going to be how you are temperamentally is probably how you're going to sort of nuance that, okay? And so people that are maybe roll a little bit on the sort of softer side, Charmin people, uh, you know, they'll, be the, they'll define it a certain way, and more of, you know, your knights in shining armor people are probably going to do it a little bit differently. All right, so let's, let's go to the next beatitude because this might give us a little clue about Max's question with respect to um, righteous anger, Okay. He said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now, the hunger and the thirst that he's talking about here is extreme. It's an extreme yearning. And it's the yearning that has the intensity level of somebody who is starving to death and they're hungry. Or they're desperate for water. They're thirsty. That's what that is. 
And this is the person who hungers and thirsts for doing the right thing and that the right thing would be done. And that's the place for righteous anger. That's the place for it. When people's rights are being trampled on, when people, uh, when people who cannot speak for themselves or advocate for themselves uh, are, are being uh, marginalized. An example of that would be in our Lutheran world, we have a group called Lutherans for Life. They advocate uh, for the unborn and they are righteously angry about it and legitimately as we all should be. But that's a good example. Now, what are they not doing? They're not going to attend and burning down Planned Parenthood buildings. They're not shooting uh, doctors who uh, perform abortions. So are we to conclude from that, that they don't really believe in the rights of the unborn? No, they're being meek. They're being firm. They, they believe what they believe as we believe what they believe. And maybe they're standing out at the abortion clinic within the limits of what the law says, you know, how many feet you can stand away and that kind of thing. You can't yell at people, but you can hold up a sign. However you do it. That's a good example of doing it within the way that respects others, right? At the same time that it is a strong conviction that this is wrong and we do what we can within the law to oppose it and to maybe even bring about a change uh, legally. Does that make sense? See, that's what that's talking about. So beloved life principle number eight is that satisfaction in life is not gained by acquiring things, but in using things for service of others. And maybe that's something for us to think about in terms of our rights as Americans, because sometimes we think in terms of our rights as something that's supposed to serve us. And we kind of goof it up, don't we? I have a right to, my right is this, right? And maybe that's not in what it was to be about. And, and when you look at it in here, it's the rights I have that were earned by somebody else and given to me, right? Are there to do what? Serve others. And by serving others, I'm serving Jesus Christ. You with us so far? Yeah. Tracking? Good. All right, so now we'll, we'll finish up with this one. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. So who are, the, who are the merciful? It's when you show the humility to set aside your own bias in order to see life through your neighbor's eyes. This is, you know, this, uh, this one, this Greek word, elamon, this is one of those words in the Greek that, that it takes about, about 60 English words to explain. <laughs> And there's a lot of words like that. There's a lot of those in Hebrew as well, you know, where the Hebrew people would just say the word like, you know, like, for example, the word uh, kesed, which means uh, steadfast. And the Bible talks about God's steadfast love, right? But if you really want to explain what steadfast is, you could write like uh, six paragraphs of it and that still wouldn't really capture it. All right. That's kind of what mercy is here. So how many of you have biases? And the rest of you do, but you're not about to admit it, right? Yeah, we all have biases. That doesn't make it bad or it's not like prejudice or anything, but we do have prejudice. We have those too. 
Well, sometimes what happens is when we are interacting with somebody else or in a relationship with somebody else, what happens is, is that our own bias gets in the way and we're not really listening. What we're doing is filtering what other people say through what we already think. And if they disagree with what we already think, then we just dismiss it. Professional listeners do that all the time. Let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah, March. Uh, I was brought up with, and my dad always said, we will put the best construction on everything. Yeah. You know what? And I think you do that. Yeah, you do. <laughs> put you on the spot. No, I don't know if you know this, but Marge works in our office on Wednesdays, right? You're there. And when I walk in, you put the best construction on my getting there late. It's just amazing. <laughs> It's so awesome. It's so awesome. You know, she'll say something like, oh, I bet you had six hospital calls to make before you walked in. And of course, I don't say anything. I'm not about to negate that, that possibility there. All right. So blessed are the merciful. See, that's that have that empathy idea. And it's also inviting people to give you the reasons for why they do what they do so that you can understand it. You don't have to agree with it, but you need to understand it. And the only way that you're going to understand it is if you listen long enough and get your own bias out of the way enough so that you can truly value the person by listening to what they have to say. That's an art. It's a practice. Some people come by it kind of naturally. Some people have to work really hard at doing it. But you got to do it. So he says, blessed are the merciful. Now, the classic meaning of mercy is also that you don't give people what they deserve. So what do they deserve? If they're sassy to you, what do they deserve? You'd be sassy back. If they run over your rights, what do they deserve? You run over theirs. If they take away something from you. You take away something from them. That's what they deserve. Even Stephen. But if you're going to be merciful, what does that mean? You don't give people what they deserve. Yikes. Boy, if I do that, somebody's going to think that I'm a real doormat. They're going to think I'm a wimp. Well, guess what? I don't really care about what they think about that. Well, that's a lie. I do care, but you see what I'm saying? Yeah, Bob. I was just going to say, we need to look at how much mercy has been shown us. Because if we got what we deserve, we wouldn't even be here. And that's why it always starts, you see, with God. It always, it always goes back to this as the originator. Because sometimes I forget that when you're treating me poorly, right? Then I get all, ooh, nobody's going to do that to me. Well, guess what? I've been doing that to God my whole life. And what is it that God does? Well, he smacks me around first and then he forgives. And then he says, go and sin no more. Don't go do that stuff anymore. It gets in the way. Do the stuff that I'm doing with you is what he says. Oh my gosh, that's awesome. So we finish with Beloved life, principle number nine, when you know you are loved and given mercy as a gift, you give as you have been given to. 
If you forget that the mercy you have is a gift, <laughs> then you're going to shift from gift mode to I have it owed to me mode. And then you're going to twist it all up. Right? Okay, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the time that we have shared together today. Thank you for the way that your word speaks to us. It was written so long ago, Lord, but it's almost like you could have said it yesterday. You just hit us between the eyes. And you remind us in those words that everything we have comes from you. And the opportunity that we have to be a witness to that and to share that with others is so ample. So, Lord, I would simply pray that you would challenge us this week to be reminded that the lives of people whose lives intersect with ours this week, that's the, that's the fishing ground. That's the opportunity that we have. And we pray, Lord, that uh, for those times when uh, it goes well, you bless it. For those times when uh, it doesn't go well and we kind of freeze up and blow it, that you remind us that you still love us and that you empower us by your spirit to stay with it. Watch over us this week, dear Lord. Be with us. Be with Pastor Coleman and the group that uh, is down in Belize. Give to them the, the joy of sharing the gospel with, uh, with folks down there in that, in that little uh, rural uh, community and, and the church they serve. And then, of course, we pray for their safety, safekeeping and their safe journey back here to us uh, this week. Watch over us, dear Lord, and be with us until we're together again. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email to messiahlutheranpodcast at gmail.com with your question or comment, and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming episode. Here at Messiah Lutheran Church, our mission statement, our tagline is sharing his light. And that means sharing the light of Christ through worship, study of his word, and loving our neighbor, whomever or wherever they may be. That's the reason we're bringing this podcast to you in your home, on your commute, to your weekly Bible study, your personal devotion, whatever. We want to share his light with you. If this podcast has brought any value to you in some way, whether it is getting to know God and his word better, looking at a particular message in the Bible a different way, inspiring you or giving you some motivation throughout your week. If you want to help us in our endeavor to share his light, please take just a few minutes to go to our podcast page in the iTunes store and write us a review. Not only will your review provide us here at Messiah with valuable feedback we can use to help improve the podcast and better deliver his message to you, but your review will also help us climb the rankings and spread this podcast and Christ's word to more people. If you want to know more about Messiah's Upper Room Podcast or Messiah Lutheran Church in general, you can visit our website at messiahlutheranpodcast.com where you can find links to all of our previous episodes, notes used during each class that are available for download, and where you can find us on the social networks. There, we also have a subscribe section that will point you directly to where you can subscribe and receive Messiah's Upper Room podcast each week through iTunes, Google Play, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, basically whatever your podcast catching application of choice may be. Thank you again so much for listening, and until next time, 
May God bless you throughout your week. Bye.